Hello everybody, Quinn's here uh, with three very short orders of business before we begin this episode. First off, to everyone who wrote in, yes, yes, the reader mail we read out last episode was the same question we read out three episodes ago, praising the play-by-mail section of our forum. But you know what? You know what? I don't regret it, because the Shut Up and Sit Down forum is a lovely golden place that deserves praise every episode, so there. Uh, I also should say that Mike Young, who works for Plan B Games, got in touch uh, to address my speculation that Reef, uh, the game, and uh, Next Move, their line of abstract games, was uh, hastily assembled as a result of Azul's success. Mike says that Plan B has been planning Next Move for two years. He also wanted to address my questioning whether the components in Reef were uh, maybe not as nice as Azul. He says that in the finished production uh, copy of Reef that we can look forward to trying later this year, um, the components will hopefully be nicer. That's all. Enjoy the show, everybody. Hello and welcome to the very 74th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, the podcast exclusively about eggs and those who eat them. That's not true. It's, that's not true. That's nobody. one of your classic jokes. My agenda slipping in there again. No, it's about board games and the people who play and love them. We've got some really big boxes coming up today, right? Uh, yes. Uh, my name is Quentin Smith, and I'm going to be Matt's uh, sole co-pilot as we fly through the skies. What's in the skies? It's board games. It's always board games if you're expecting anything else from this podcast. I'm sure that when some of these board games get into your engines, they are going to tear this plane out of the sky. Talking of Sky, we've got Isle of Sky. <laughs> uh, we, we reviewed the expansion for that, Journeyman, on the website, a written review. Just this week, we'll talk about that very briefly, because we've gone Isle of Sky mad. We have. We've gone Scott mad, as we said in the review. We're going to be talking about Stuffed Fables, mm. an incredible, beautiful box of stuffed animals coming to life that's really designed uh, for parents to play with their kids. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking a bit about that. And uh, we're also going to be talking about The Beast, the big box, the bloated boy, the bad board, Bob Bobby, that is War of the Ring. The Lord I, for the Rings. Yes, it is. it simulates the War of the Ring in The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. What if a hobbit find out this and much <laughs> more? We also, I think, might have time to talk very briefly about some first impressions of Rising Sun, mm-hmm. a very exciting Kickstarter game. Uh, that was almost entirely transformed into plastic by stretch goals, like a kind of uh, modern internet Medusa, Mm. whereby the more money people paid, cool money or not, for uh, Rising Sun, the more the game turned into plastic. And we don't have the fully plastic plastic version. No, we have the the standard retail version, which I'm I'm happier with, to be honest, because I think there is such thing as too many plastics. Wasn't it like one of the final stretch goals, they come around your house and turn your family into plastic? Yeah, and I thought, this is too much, but the internet went crazy for it. Yeah, lots of people now with buyer's regret and tiny plastic mums. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's talk about Isle of Sky. Journeyman. Isle of Sky, oh, miss rolling in from the sea. It's a game about putting down cardboard squares <laughs> to make an island. And it's kind of, it threw me at first because I thought you, it was one of those games where you have to put squares down to build roads and stuff. And that's kind of an element of it. But obviously, Island Sky actually is more about um, creating little connected ecosystems. So it's just like, being that, ecosystem is the wrong word. Ponds, mountains. <laughs> fields like landscapes yeah you put it down you're like oh, i can only put this tile here because it needs to have a 
a bit of mountain to its right and a bit of sea to the north. Mm-hmm. And then, you, but then that's the very base level of it. You then think, well, yeah, but what am I trying to go for in terms of what are the shared objectives that everyone wants to hit throughout the game of being like, maybe everyone's gone mad for sheep and everyone wants loads of sheep. Maybe you want to enclose your pond off full of boats to get more multiplier for, for lighthouses. And it's a board game. You're playing a board game. I think a lot of people um, kind of let this game sail them by uh, when it first came out in 2015. And then Paul did his uh, video review in, I think, 2016, maybe. And we didn't necessarily feel the need to play it because it looks so plain. It looks a lot yeah. like Carcassonne. You've got these, uh, if people aren't aware of that, very, very popular game. And rightly so, about building uh, a French countryside and trying to claim bits of it. Like, you're working together to build a nice map, but you want the best bits of the map. Uh, like with real France. Yes, or most of history. Yeah, but with Isle of Sky, like, I think as well, like, one thing we didn't really mention in the written review for the expansion, because I don't feel we need to, is it's quite ugly as well. It's not the most attractive thing in the world. But it You does... mean the expansion or the base game? The whole thing. The whole the whole game. The yeah. whole, both of them. I mean, also it has that thing which I really don't like of the kind of weird perspective of having 2D symbols that... Like 2D images of people that then you have a man who's walking, but he's upside down. and Yeah, so well, this, I don't know how much this bothers It's not really even else. a criticism, but it breaks my brain. I think that <laughs> Matt and I, it's unfortunate that we work together because I think we're the only two board gamers on the planet who care about this. Um, but when you are looking at uh, sort of a map from above, like you do in Isle of Sky or Lords of Vegas, if you've played that one, um, often the buildings have a slight slant because that's a lot more attractive than viewing them directly from above as if you're looking at Google Maps. Um, but then if you're allowed to rotate those tiles, and you are in mm-hmm. both of those games, then suddenly you've got this like Escher-esque thing whereby you look, you're looking at a castle which is leaning to the north and you look down at a farm and that's pointing south. And the sheep are upside down. Yep. It's weird to me because it actually repeatedly throws me in terms of how the game functions because I find myself naturally looking at positions and being like, well, this feels optimal to me. But really, I'm my brain is always trying to optimize it to be looking nice which just has no bearing whatsoever on how well you're actually doing and actually one of the nice things about um isle of sky is that you can build however you want you can be mercenary but uh alexander fister has designed it in such a way that if you do manage to make like all your roads link up or you manage to enclose a lake rather than just having some water that splashes off in every direction into nothingness then the game often rewards you for it, Mm -hmm. which is really nice. Yeah, there's some really lovely neatness stuff there. And the expansion we reviewed basically adds what looked quite complicated, like a tech track, basically, for Mm -hmm. people to move along and unlock better things. And a little man who walks around your island, he's your best mate, because you're like the king and... He's your best mate, and he just wanders around looking at stuff. Well, Alabaster... <laughs> pointing uh, at mountains. Commenter and forum mod uh, for Shadow Presidente Alabaster said that uh, he would have uh, preferred the game if it was called Isle of Sky, colon, My Weird Mate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Which is absolutely true. Um, it's... It, what I didn't realise when we published the review this week is it's not actually out in America yet. I really, really liked it. I'd recommend people just go and scan through the review and see the photos uh, to get a better sense of it, but... Even the basic game, I think I really, really enjoyed it. It was a joy. We played it a couple of times over a couple of weekends um, here and there, and then with the expansion. And each time we alternated between the two, I found myself being like, I want to play the other version. Yeah, I want to play the other version. Uh, uh, and you know what as well? I, it's so nice to have a game where you can build a map, which is nice in Isle of Sky, but then 
to actually live in it is, I mean, and it doesn't really do that. The expansion simply has a guy that walks around it and will occasionally like climb a mountain or look at a brewery or whatever. But still, just it brings it to life that little bit more. Like you have, even if it's just one person living in it, I felt that it kind of, no, you're shaking your I head. I didn't get me. that at all, but that's cool. It's cool that you did. Basically, I, I was, I don't, I don't get it, Matt. Why weren't you also hallucinating <laughs> that your little wooden man was alive? I just felt like what I liked about it was, so much of the normal uh, game is, you know, you you put your tiles in front and you 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 put prices on them and you hope that people buy your tiles and then you hope that you can afford other people's tiles that you want. But often you'll really have very specific needs as the game goes on. You're like, I really need a tile that does this and this and hopefully this. And if nothing's available or someone buys the one you want or, yeah, then you just can't really, you kind of feel like sometimes you have turns where you can't really do anything good. And for the added complexity of the expansion, I just like the fact that you, I had turns where I was like, well, I can't really get any tiles that add to my map in a way that I'm happy with, but at least I can get my man to go and walk over there and build a road and climb up that mountain and get some points for that. So I, it added that nice kind of Eurogamey thing of um, a sense of constant progress. And also as a, as a alternative thing to it, I love the fact that it seemed to add a lot more money into the ecosystem, You know, which meant that Everything was a bit wackier in that a way, was, which was fun. That was a comment on our review that did cause me to view the uh, expansion in a new light, that the original game of Isle of Sky has an economy which is so clean. It's yes. Like everyone gets five coins, but for every brewery connect, you get one extra coin. So it's kind of, it, you can easily wrap your head around that. Everyone's getting like five, six, seven mm-hmm. points a turn. You get more if you sell your tiles, whereas the expansion means that everyone's just raking in money from, you know, your weird mate who's walking around and has come back with bags of coins and pours money into the economy and the numbers get a bit crazy. And that is fun. Mm-hmm. And people shouldn't let that put them off the game because it works. It absolutely works. But it's, yeah, there's some, there's a beautiful simplicity that basically Well, it has. changes it. I think that's the thing is it's, it removes that emphasis of like, really the, the base game, there's not a lot to it. And it really is just about that bidding phase about like, how much do I think I can get for this? Yeah. Who's going to buy this? Whereas you can't work that out in the other ones. It was like, <laughs> there were sometimes when we were playing, you were like putting up tiles for 12 and me and Clark, the other guy playing with us, were like, no, you're mad. I'm not paying that. Because <laughs> everyone has like really specific, hey, you might have loads of money, but also it's really hard to quickly look around the board and quickly read what people want because yeah, people's strategies are way more complex. I don't think it's a game about that, yeah. No, but it is in the base game, though. It is like, who's going to want boats? He's going to want boats. Mm. And you know they will, and they will. Yeah. But I liked it. I like them both. I think they're actually surprisingly different. It's quite nice to have an expansion which doesn't add just, just add more, but actually gives you just quite a different game. You know, we always think of expansions as um, ways in which you can... Uh, look at a game with new eyes it's like oh i'm bored of this game but now with the expansion i'm not we don't often consider that a really good expansion might uh, make you not just look at the game with new eyes but then the idea of playing without the expansion seems fresh as well mm. so you're kind of constantly bouncing between the two because they all seems always seems fresh all the time variants food for thought uh everyone went crazy crazy for great western trail last year mm-hmm. um but i love sky from the same designer alexander fister <clears throat> just because it's so quick and easy I think I might end up playing it more. Yeah. Just because it's so easy to get to the table. And I also really like it. So even though it's easy to say, oh, Great Western Trail is Fister's greatest work. It's, what does it say that I'm playing I Love Sky more? You know? There's a lot to be said for just boxes which you can get out to the table and it's not a massive faff. I am actually, I'm exhausted this week because I had a very late night playing Innis. Oh, Innis, was it? And um, it was great. It was good. But again, one of these games where I'm like, you can just... It has some complexity to it, but I feel confident enough that you can just get it out with some people and 
people will understand it and get into it. Usually the first round's a little slow because you're like, look, all of these cards, you're going to know them in about five minutes. Yeah. Um, but the first round is tricky. But anyway, it ended up being a bit nightmarish. It was a session that went on until about one in the morning because I was playing with a good friend of mine and his twin brother. Um, you may remember for a very long time ago, his twin brother sent a photo of the dead of winter being played on a train with a blizzard outside of it. Oh my goodness, Which we posted yeah. on our Facebook page. The crazy person who played Dead of Winter on a tiny train table. Yeah, in it, a blizzard. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was him. But yeah, I played with both of them and it was it was kind of painful because... Wow. Tell well, me more. It, well, it was a dual thing of the fact that of having them both playing a bit erratically, but also the fact that they thought, oh, he's good. Matt's good at board games, which basically meant they just didn't let me do anything. I was getting geist, which is the card people play to cancel a move yeah for like no reason all the time like i wasn't even involving them i was just like i'll do this guys i'm like why <laughs> yeah it i've heard other people complain um that they didn't like inish because it's a game where you have to eventually let someone win like if your board state's bad enough and there's good enough and you can't see a way that you personally can win you have to kind of give up and be like ah because this game has to end at some point. We all have, you know, dinners and lives. And if you're not going to win, then you might as well let someone else win because yeah. it's the same outcome. For me, then it becomes about choosing who's going to win. Right. And you said and I like that back on the podcast where we talked about Inish forever ago, that it's kind of nice to be able to choose your uh, uh, leader. Yeah. Oh, we could talk about how like good kingmaking versus bad kingmaking. Yeah. That's a whole topic. Well, in the end, I got so fed up because I like my friend Laurie just kept lying to me and basically said like, I haven't got any attack cards. And I was like, because of the weird cyclical nature of the combat and who gets to be the one who's defended in the Citadel each each turn, mm. I was like, I can't attack. You have to attack. So I don't have any attack cards. But if you play an attack card, then I'll pick it up using my card and I'll use it. And then I just like did it. And I'm like, are you going to pick it up? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, right. So I actually just specifically like went out of way. I did something then which made it impossible for like to stop his brother from winning, which I kind of enjoy. It's like, for me, that's as, as enjoyable as winning of being like, no, I'm done with you. You've, <laughs> you've been too cheeky too many times. But no, I just found that like, if you do actually play it like a traditional military game where people are just amassing Everyone had their areas and they were just building up more and more people and holding off from having fights and basically playing it like it was a traditional like risk style game or something. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of slow and not much fun, but it was interesting because I've never seen it played like that before. And I was like, I kept trying to say to them, like, this isn't, this how, isn't how you're works. supposed to play it. But you know, you can't convince people to just have pointless wars for no reason. Well, it sounds like you weren't having fun, but were they? I think they had a lot of fun, yeah. Oh, well, hey, there you go. Yeah, I mean, it was it was slower than usual, and it was like pulling teeth for me, because it was just that thing of being like, well, I guess I'll make one man. No. And I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> it was just like being bullied by people with hammers. Well, speaking about bullying, bullying creatures with hammers, should we talk about stuffed fables? Yeah. That's one odd game. It's, yeah, so this is in the same line as Mice and Mystics, if people have ever heard of that. It's from Plaid Hat, and it is a game that is clearly aimed at kids in some way, even more so than in Mice and Mystics, because it's a game of uh, stuffed animals who are trying to protect uh, a, a girl uh, from all kinds of crazy nightmare monsters. Yeah, but it's all tied into real-life stuff. So it's this girl growing up, and I think it starts off with her isn't it her first night in the big bed? So she's, yes, she's just left the cot, so it's her first night in a grown-up bed. Yeah, and then as it goes on, I think it covers things like wetting the bed and stuff. It yeah. does, yeah. Um, and the the first sort of campaign is, I think, her favourite uh, blanket or something. gets dragged under the bed and mm -hmm. swallowed up, and you have to chase it, and then where do you end up? I'm certainly not going to spoil that. No. 
But it's, it has kind of inception elements as well of like, you know, if, if basically you oh, lose yeah. when she wakes up and if she's restless, it's like all of the, it's like the idea of every time she's restless, sleeping, the world shakes and things happen. Yeah, that was a wonderful uh, element. There's uh, some absolutely wonderful theming in here. I remember we talked about this at our podcast at Shucks last year at our convention and I was a bit concerned about the kind of crossover between like, this is a game aimed at young children, possibly young girls, and it's got like rusty knives and hammers and scissors and i was yeah. a bit like but a lot of parents who were there and since commented and being like oh it's not it's fine it's like, yeah it's, which is like okay i'm probably just being overly sensitive so let's talk about the good stuff first oh my goodness it's beautiful mm. like the models are beautiful as well i love that there's a lot of use of like um simplicity on these models like a lot of the time when you look at uh, plastic models for games they're often incredibly detail heavy yeah. and it's following the same tradition that video games always have that better graphics means you can see more tiny things where actually <laughs> these are smooth and simple and because of that you know they pop and they're wonderful and that's a trend i would really really like to see continued not just being like hyper detail models but just great simple sculptural design yeah i i totally agree uh it also has a sort of board where as you advance through the story it's um got that thing we've seen in other board games like i think near and far but by the board is a book mm -hmm. a big ring binder and so you just turn a page and then the right side of the page the right side of the sort of book the right page is the rules and the left page is the uh, map mm -hmm. so there's no setup of a board because you just turn the page there's the board put people on it run around uh, and then get into all kinds of scrapes. Yeah, and there's like five mini campaigns, I think, yep. around that. And, and you can branch your way through them. So you might play a campaign once, and if you do really well, you end up in a fight against the big bad. And if you do badly, then, well, it probably just sort of ends. We were surprised how quickly and how often these can branch off because it is a book. It could basically like choose your own adventure, do the mission. And, you know, I think the second mission we played had three different Possible. possible next missions yeah uh and obviously it's kind of often branches that come back as characters you unlock that you can play with as you go a lot of it was really good and actually to be honest when we started playing it we were both incredibly excited by it we thought this is just brilliant yeah however there were a few things that we started to kind of have uh personal issues with but actually as you say it's more of a case of like this is what it is um if people like think that's great for their kids like it may be awesome yeah so the problem we encountered and interestingly i was able to talk about this with um one of our freelancers uh matt thrower who um was talking about playing it with his kids and he said that he did have the same problem we did which is occasionally you turn a page in the campaign and you're having fun and you're leveling up and you've got you know items and you're gonna save the girl and then you're faced with about 600 words of rules yeah. and, and that are really hard to pass like yeah. You know, we play literally hundreds of uh, board games each year, reading hundreds of manuals. So when we're faced with a block of text and we're like, wait, I, I don't understand this. Yep. That's like, that is something that means we can never recommend a game. Yeah, there's, there was caveats for rules and like the, the way they kind of stretched out, it's like, basically you've got this, this, um, this big page and it's a big square page and you've got a big bit of story to read out and then you've got like some rules for the mission then you've got other bits of story that you're supposed to read out at certain times you've got other bits other where, bits of oh, rules no don't read that because this hasn't happened yet yeah but then like you don't get something but then you because you don't understand it you obviously read the rest because you're trying to work out what you're missing out and then you read everything and you still don't get it yeah. and then there's a tiny bit of text at the top right and you're like oh okay that means that and how do we win this are we supposed to reshuffle and this, this is when you've got like two 30 year old men <laughs> fully sober uh fully and i just think especially as well the other problem is it's an incredibly elegant idea on paper to have um 
a map and then the rules and the story on the other page. But the problem is with this, frankly, you flip the page, you put your model, you want to put your models on and just have the map, but you need to, you, the amount of times you feel like you just didn't think, okay, the only way this is going to get solved is for me to just pick up this book and read it. Yeah. Like, cause it's small text as well. You, it's all very well to lean over the table to read a small reference card, but it's a book, you know? So having it linked to the actual map when you want to check something halfway through the mission, you, I'd imagine as a parent, you'd be like, mommy or daddy needs to just read this. Well, and so like, this is what Matt Thrower said, that they were enjoying it to begin with, and then he, and they still do enjoy it, and it's become kind of a hit, and they're working through it. But um, yeah, they said, he was saying that kids have very short attention spans, and yep. he sort of tried reading ahead through the whole thing, but then that completely spoils it for him. So instead, he has to just have the kids wait while he tries to pass rules, and he said that he's kind of games mastering it, and I took from his email that he's kind of like, fudging rules in places because yeah. guess what kids don't care if you're playing no. with the right rules or not exactly so why are there so many and i mean that's what we found is is there are so many rules and it's a shame because the basic game is a simple tactical game that's fun it's like my it's a perfect my first tactical yeah grid-based hitter like, monster we were a, really enjoying it and then pencil. we couldn't quite get our heads around it when then a couple of missions in we were suddenly in a different type of mission which wasn't a tactical mission and it was just a kind of a weird cross between using some of the game mechanics with the dice in the bags and having a choose-your-own-adventure. And it just had way too many mechanics. And it's like, why? Yeah, it's... it's Like, <laughs> it just didn't make sense. And yet, the thing is, we had a similar problem with Mice and Mystics where we were bashing our heads against it and going, you know, why? Who is this for? But that game has a really large fan base. And I think the answer of who Mice and Mystics and Stuff Fables are for are people, whether they're kids or adults, but ideally both, who just really want to like it, who yeah. are going to work through all the problems and just love the ambitious design and the storytelling and the writing. And hey, I've got to say, the writing is really nice. Yes. We really enjoyed the writing in it. We weren't uh, too impressed by the writing in Mice and Mystics. Um, we way prefer the game of Stuff Fables. We way prefer the writing of Stuff Fables, the world, the miniatures, the idea. It's all great, except for it's also like, you know, driving a car that's just stalling all the time. It was strange to me. It was like, it kind of felt like they weren't confident enough in their own core design of the game because it just it honestly could have just been like here's you know everything you learn in the first scenario like it doesn't need new mechanics after that you've already got this mechanic of having buttons that you can save up to buy items in a shop that's enough like that and the story you're done mm-hmm. when it starts doing these alternative mission style things and having like complex rule sets it's just like nah there was there are and this may sell you on the game, there are whole other games in that book. Like you turn a page and it's like, all right, now we're playing this sort of like push your luck, dice rolling, keep some dice, throw away some others, try and build a dice ball of the right color dice. And you just can't believe it because it's, Matt and I were looking at each other going, this could have been just like a mini choose your own adventure. Do you want to go left or right? You go left, here's some story, move on. Yeah. Kids are happy, parents are happy, boom. Rather than instead of like, they've packed extra dice games in there. Like, what are you doing? And that was a real killer for us and I, I imagine kids with short attention span would be just because by, after the end of the, the, the mission before that we were hyped we just wanted to play more of it and then yeah. we realized we'd hit this thing where we had to stop playing the game and i mean basically that's the sentence really that for me is like sets alarms ringing in terms of kids is the sentence no no we have to stop what we're doing now because we have to do this thing now kids never want to hear that like mm. <laughs> if kids are doing a thing they, they actually like they like just repetitive doing a thing and unlocking a story and yeah but we've, we've looked past flaws before we always look past flaws in descent and imperial assault where like the overlord player had to kind of play a bit easy so if you want to like stuff fables by all means you know pick up a copy investigate it and find ways around its problems oh, of course yeah i don't know if we're going to get a sort of 
kidsy game that is quite this exciting for years. Yeah, exactly. I think I think we just hit a point where we were like, we don't really know how bad how, this how, is in terms of... How do of, we do our job with this? It's just that thing of being like, from our perspective, looking at it, I'm like, I don't imagine kids would... would, would I think kids would... They still work through it because kids work through anything if they love it. It just may be that for you as a parent, you may be sitting there going, okay. <laughs> So let's talk about something that's a bit more in our wheelhouse. Then. Yeah. Let's talk about the war... Of the Ring, da, 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 second edition, da, 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 because the first edition came out in 2005, da, 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 second edition 2012, da, 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 da. there's a lot of difference da, da, da. between the editions. We got the ring, we got the hobbit, we're on the road, there's a mountain over there. Hello. Lord of the Rings, what a... What a film. Wow. Wow. Okay, great. Yeah, what a film. What a time we had. Uh, War of the Ring is a war game where one player is Sauron, one player is the Fellowship and the Forces of the West. And you know what, Matthew? Let's start with the fact that this game gave me a backache yep. from setting it up yep. and playing it's it. It's massive. And I'm going to go ahead straight off the bat here with a mid-sentence turnaround <laughs> of saying we set it up. It was... I didn't really enjoy it very much. <laughs> but then I woke up the next morning... And I really wanted to play it again. Right. Uh, we're going to do a video review of this because it is heralded as one of these classics of, um, uh, you know, board game design. And it's weird. And it does stuff that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. There's lessons in it that I want to, you know, like make sure aren't lost. Yeah. And so we want to do a video game review. Video review, rather. Um, but yeah, it's not going to be... It's weird. We it's all, weird, right? I also want to do a video review because we're just going to have so much fun making jokes about hobbits and, you know, Gandalf. And, and I'm pretty sure no one's done that. Yeah, I know, right? We should do some kind of parody. On the internet, I'm pretty sure it just hasn't what been done. What if I wore a wig that made me look like Gandalf? No. And a pointy hat. Wow. And then what? I'd do it like an accent. I'd be like, hobbits. I think that's a bit too out there for our audience. Right. <laughs> I think people will be... We should keep it straight. Oof. Yeah. So uh, you played the forces of the West. I did. You thanks. played the Fellowship. You played Rohan. You played elves. By the end of the day, you You're had kind. a passing knowledge of the symbols for all of the different Good countries. Gosh. <laughs> because you had to learn them yep. to play the game. Yeah. What was that like for you? Um, it was stressful. Um, it, actually, that's not true. It wasn't stressful. It was frustrating initially. I've got to say, um, because I do, I really like Lord of the Rings. But hey, Matt, don't you think it would be frustrating to be taking on Sauron as Gandalf? To, <laughs> frustrating to be Frodo with the weight of the world upon your shoulders? Yeah, but I think like you're Frodo with the weight of your world on your shoulders, and someone's given you a tiny rubbish map, and you don't know where you are. No, it was like a lot of the cards had uh, like referred to places on the map, like little areas. And they're not like the, all the big cities either. Like, you know, I know some of the big places. Come on. Gondor. Yeah, come on. We know those ones. But New there's Castle. lots of little places. Yeah, Newcastle, Rome. Um, but there's lots of little places in between. And it's like, oh, you can do this here and here. And then you're like, there's no reference on the card because it's a card game from just... It's just old enough that <laughs> so many design and iconography things are now just like... This is how you do it. Come yeah, on. Yeah. Just weren't in stone at that point. So yeah, it was very frustrating having to constantly get up and look at look around this map, just trying to find which place this referred to. Where's Markwood? Which is never good in a in a game of like sort of semi-hidden information being like, oh, it's there. <laughs> um and also like as the map fills up with people and you covering up the names of these places. Secondly, there are each of the different areas has its own symbol, which is a tiny, again, really beautiful little piece of art, but not readable. Like <laughs> yeah. The horse looked like an axe. So just, yeah. in our movie, and we did basically, because we finished the game, you know, it, yep. took, it took like 
something like four or five or six hours, um, but we finished it. And um, in our movie, Aragorn showed up in Rohan and then said, I try to get to Gondor. And then someone went, I'm sorry, Aragorn, there's a mountain there's range a mountain. in the way. And Can't he you went, see the black line on the map? Oh no, I didn't know there was a mountain here. And then Saruman killed him. Yeah. I in mean, what was actually the coolest fight of the whole. For game. you, maybe. It for was me, so it good. sucked. <laughs> it really sucked. But I had to elect to sacrifice all of my Uruk High. I don't care. It sucked because <laughs> literally, just because I had slightly too many miniatures on the board, they were covering up the black line, which represented the mountain, which meant I had made a very specific move which then meant that rather than him being like, well, he can stay there and then he's going to run over there to go home yeah. and become Aragorn because he was still just Strider at this point. Um, he couldn't because there was a mountain there and then I realized there was nothing he could do. So he just died where he was and it really sucked. And you know what? Like, it's interesting that it's clearly a lot of the DNA from this game uh, was uh, surgically plucked for for. Um, Star Wars Rebellion. Which Fantasy Flight put out recently. Uh, I did a video review. Matt and I recently covered the expansion. It's your opportunity to retell the Star Wars story in an mm. Imperial versus Rebel strategy game. Yeah, and it has some similar elements. It has a kind of hidden movement, but in a well, hidden location. Whereas uh, War for the Ring doesn't have a hidden movement, but it has a kind of an element of that. It's almost like you've got the Fellowship and they exist off the board somewhere. And then you're doing actions which allow the Fellowship to theoretically have moved yeah and then it becomes a thing of eventually you cash it in and be like all right i've got seven of these points which means they're going one two three four five six seven they're now here yeah or what happened to me you found me which meant i'm just like oh i guess i'm six spaces from where i am i guess i'm just in the middle of this field field outside of mordor it's quite elegant in that if the that's really cool yeah yeah if the if the bad guys if the forces of um darkness find the fellowship then essentially the it forces the good player to find them to place them somewhere uncomfortable, yeah. which is perfect because you know if they're found, then they're not going to be like I was bricking it. Frankly, they they were just in the middle of nowhere, had no one around, and there were loads of Nazgul out at that point. It does also have that lovely escalation of being like you know you start off and no one's really at war, and there's a weird political tracker system which is actually really cool of being like you have to convince people each of the different types of species you know humans dwarves and actually no it's not even that it's like different areas of the map humans again. dwarves elves other humans and other humans and humans with horses all uh, of which have their own miniatures yep they in, do like in what is just the most shockingly that really annoyed tedious me tedious bit of but there is a reason for that but it really annoyed me how similar they all looked and i know that's probably just because they wanted to keep it true to look in the same way that the iconography on the board looked lovely but gosh just make things a bit more obvious i'd love a more like cartoonized version of it just to make it easier to read anyway I, I love that you have to actually like send people out there first of all to just convince these people that there is even a war yeah because it's at the point where they're chilling out in rivendale is it rivendale 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 uh they're chilling out there and they're about to go off with gandalf and <laughs> Wait, rivendale is like yeah that's the thing with archie oh nice so, um so it's at that point. So people, apart from the elves, who are like, listen up, for real, we've got a big <laughs> issue here. Yeah. Everyone else is like, well, I don't know. Yeah. So I like Unless uh, they get uh, attacked by the forces of evil, which is great because as the forces of evil, you can like attack someone, you know, once and maybe get away with it and they'll be like, oh, but it's fine. It's nothing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if you keep attacking them, then you sort of do the, the good players work for him. But then her. it's that thing of like, if you attack them 
two or three times swiftly enough and strongly enough, then it doesn't matter that they've worked out there's a war. They're done. Like that, that you know. Yeah, they're all dead. They're all dead. Um, and so it's a really nice swing of being like, A, you're working up this track to try and get your hobbits to Mordor. B, you've got to then try and activate all of these nations or uh, not even all of them because it's you don't have time you just the which ones are the ones that are going to be the most important to yeah. be able to control because you can't even control these armies until you've basically got them on side um and then also having this mechanic between the two of having your fellowship of people um being this off-board group wandering around somewhere but at any point being able to split off these characters from it and being like actually gandalf is now here. Yeah. And then it may, you're making the fellowship weaker, which means that when they do get to Mordor and have to go run around the mountain and drop a ring in it, um, there's a greater chance that that part of the mission will fail. But, you you know, I had a bit right at the start of the game where I'm like, bang, Gimli. He's run halfway across the world. <laughs> Gimli ran a marathon across the He ran the top such of the a long way yeah. to go and just tell the dwarves, dwarves, there's, there's a war. And, and the dwarves went, okay. And it was really pointless because I didn't actually <laughs> use the dwarves at all. I had a plan for it, but it didn't pan out. But again, they, they because, definitely knew there was a war. Again, because there was a mountain on the board I hadn't oh, seen. Oh, really? Yeah. It was funny because in our movie, the um, it was it was kind of turned on its head by the end because you'd broken off no basically no one in the fellowship. Everyone except like Gimli, Gandalf, and Strider mm-hmm. were still in the fellowship. So you've got Sean Bean and you've got Legolas, and they're all in Mordor. So it was they all got to Mordor. So it's the end of Lord of the Rings, but like the fellowship's basically all together. So Frodo had it made in the shade. Frodo was going to dunk that ring like yep. a basketball player into a hoop. It was great. But that meant that the timer for the movie wasn't, oh, I hope Frodo makes it. It was me, the evil guy, going, oh, I hope I can conquer the world before this inevitably happens. Yeah. Which was really kind of interesting and tense for me because it meant that, you know, like the siege of Gondor and all the siege of um, Helm's Deep and all the other sieges you have to do as a bad guy. Um, I was on the clock and mm. it's really, really, really hard to siege places. It's got that lovely asymmetrical thing where each side feels like they are screwed. Yeah. But they're not. It's funny as well. I think it reminded me a lot of Rebellion actually for bad, for bad reasons. Um, in the fact that they both games have, I think, problems whereby it's their long games. This is longer than Rebellion. Uh, but they're, they're long or long feeling games where you feel you're building up to something and then due to misreading a something or not noticing something on the board, um, the big thing you were going to do doesn't work. And with Rebellion, I found that was often card text that I just thought, come on guys, just use some bolder italics because there's like some really important like May or like some stuff which is really crucial and I'm I'm way less forgiving of with Rebellion because it's a much more modern game from from a, a, you know, a publisher who actually really good at this sort of stuff and and no better. But um, but with this, the funny thing was, I think that the crucial difference actually was with Rebellion, you've got actually not an especially interesting war game. Yeah. And also not an especially interesting reading on the possibilities within that universe. Right. So this is exactly what I was going to say. And the opposite is true for this, I think. Yeah. So um, it's quite a good war game. It's pretty interesting in terms of where you put units. And the thing that makes it really interesting is moving units is it's slow in Rebellion. It's mm-hmm. slower in this. Yeah. If you march like, you know, your big legion of orcs, which is like all your orc miniatures, up the side of the, you know, the the sea or whatever, um, that is... Well, I didn't even realize when I started marching those yeah. orcs. It's like, oh, they'll cross the world. But then like two turns in, they still haven't reached their destination. And if they get like obliterated or something, it's like everything takes so long. Yeah. Which means every move is kind of interesting because you really commit. If you siege a place and don't get it, how many attacks have you wasted? How many miniatures have you wasted? Like it's, 
it hurts and it's kind of like death by thousand cuts in a, in a nice way. Losing a miniature, like your plans fade away. With and it. it took me a while to clock that. At first I just sort of felt it was slow, but I realized actually, and again, it's, it's really weird because so much of this I didn't entirely clock until the end of the game. And usually for me, that's like, come on, get out. Like, I, don't, I don't like it when people are like, <laughs> hey, play this six hour game. The first time you play it, you won't like it that much, <laughs> but then you'll get it. And it's like, really? But it depends how... It's how good. much you can get from it. Yeah, exactly. Right? And we kind of, we enjoyed certainly bits of our first play, but the most important thing is like, I think that what you're talking about is when you finish something and you have a bad experience and someone says, oh, you got to play it again. Then that just sucks. But we finished it and we wanted to play it. Was it was weird. I, I popped up on this next morning and I think I just, uh, I typed you on Slack. I'm like, I woke up this morning really wanting to play it. And you were like, I know, right? And it's like, <laughs> I was sort of worried you were going to be like, are you crazy? Because I don't know. I was, I felt pretty cold about it after the first time. I think just because um, there were simple things frustrating me, readability. and But again, it was that weird thing of being like, yeah, but it's basically it was a lot of it came down to like where the mountains are. And if you play it again, I actually have that map in my head pretty clearly now. Because, yeah, I do as well. Because I, as a tactical map, it's like a big thing. Also, I didn't realize at first I thought things were very slow, but like you, I didn't realize when you were sending these orcs off across the map to try and take Hobbiton. Oh yeah, um, that was the, uh, Tom the, Bombadil Tom, pr- protecting Hobbiton from all my, which would have been a nice, nice scene in the movie, frankly. Yeah, Tom so, Bombadil pulled his finger out and stopped it, made it so that they couldn't attack Hobbiton and that was, was your big plan. Yeah, it was great. It was honestly a really wonderful play. But, um, so I completely agree with you that in terms of retelling the movies, I find it so much more exciting and evocative than Rebellion. But I will also uh, put to you, I don't think that's Fantasy Flight's fault because Lord of the Rings is a series of movies that, well, a lot of them are about war, yeah. are about individual sacrifice, are about people dying. Um, and Rebellion doesn't have that. Like Rebellion, it's in space. There's no map. Like I, you know when the Star Destroyers like arrive at Hoth, but you don't know where they came from. Mm. Like there's no sense of how big the armies are. Whereas like in Lord of the Rings, for example, when they march into, uh, where is it? Uh, Mordor. <laughs> I know Lord of the Rings Mordor, that rare, like, and unheard of place. Um, there's a sense, you know, that this is the last of humanity's armies, right? Mm. They say, well, by Frodo time, this is the last push we've got. And that's that's manifested in the board game. Like, yeah. you do have moments where it's like, this is the last army I can put together. I mean, a crucial mechanic, which we both love, which we mentioned, is the fact that, like, the human, the, 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 the good guys have a limited army yeah. at the start of the game, whereas the bad guys can just keep respawning as much as they need. Which means, like, once all the elves, once you put all the elves on the board, yeah. and they're dead, all the elves are dead. Yeah, which is, again, a really evocative moment. Yeah. And it's, like, it, it's just because it's a geographical series of movies that are really about armies and people you're right but there's also some some weird i mean there are some pulling punches but also it's the i don't know like a weird thing for me rebellion is is the simple thing of like characters don't really die no like, they can get but how many characters actually die in Star well i was Wars? thinking that in the original films not that many but in the more recent ones everybody dies because <laughs> yeah. people know that that's sad yeah but to the point that actually i don't find it sad anymore because so many people die i'm just like come on this is just life anyway that's a side, side <laughs> second but but no i think what i really liked in um and also i think it's the fact that again everything's a bit more like airy like in, in rebellion like you tactically assign people all over the place you don't have Leia very slowly moving across the galaxy because, again, I'm, I know why that is mechanically. It's because the rebels don't have an open, centralized location. Yeah. But there's something about that as well, like of having somebody being like, when <laughs> when poor Strider was chilling out in Helm's Deep, yeah. he was stuck there. Yes. Like, he was there. You mean in the movies or in our game? In our game. Right. Like, he was 
he was there. And then also like when Gandalf popped up and bashed you with some trees, it's like, oh, yeah. yeah. But then it, it, it adds a weight to it where a lot of the cards allow you to do things that happen in the films. But then when things, when you have your own twist on it, it was very entertaining. It was, you know, I, it's very difficult to put your finger on why this is. And I think this is why when people say, would you ever design a board game? We say, no, it's impossible to make a good board game. <laughs> like, why is it that in Rebellion, if you've got like, Han Solo rescuing Obi-Wan from uh, like Dantooine or whatever. That does isn't exciting. But in our game, like if you have Pippin leading an army or like Pippin involved in an army against like some spiders in Mirkwood, that becomes a really evocative scene. Like it just, it, it functions better. Well, I think I can answer that question actually. And I think it's because to be honest, like the characters in, in Rebellion and Star Wars in general are kind of sacrosanct and you can't, you can't, there's no, never any real risk for, whereas the real emphasis really of what's happening in the build-up. Lord of the Rings is all about sort of sacrificing positioning. Well, it's about people. And at least there is an identity there of being like the dwarves. You know, it's still in your mind, you still think of it as being a human story to a degree, right? Whereas like in Star Wars, in, in, especially in modern Star Wars, it's all about the ships and the vehicles. And uh, Star Destroyer is cool, right? And like in, in, when you're playing Rebellion, it's like, oh, next turn they're going to get two Star Destroyers. Star Destroyers are cool. And tactically, you might go, oh, that's worrying. But the Nazgul, like, the Nazgul are frightening. Like, yeah. the Witch King. When the Witch King turns up, you go, oh. Yeah, or, and you have, you know, if, if I don't know, so in Rebellion, if uh, if Leia gets turned to the dark side or something, that is kind of good. But when, if, I don't know, like, uh, if uh, Gandalf dies, and then he comes back as Gandalf the White, which is a thing that obviously happens, but then he dies. It's like, oh my God, it's a moment of, of true horror, right? Yeah. If Gandalf the White dies protecting, like, I don't know, the the elves in Rivendell, because if Rivendell falls, then uh, then Sauron's won. It's weird. I think it's one of those old games where it's, it's very esoteric and there's a lot going on. And the first time you play through it, you're like, it's kind of frustrating because you get things wrong. And especially because you have these big plays that literally you've been working towards for a couple of hours. And then you realize actually you've kind of, got something wrong slightly and you can't do it that's not a great thing but there's enough i think the crucial thing is there's enough it's trying to do with its own weird system here that afterwards when you look at it and you see what it's trying to do you kind of realize it's worth you're like yeah no it's it's worth going back into this odd system because what it's doing is actually really interesting i mean your mileage may vary of course i think uh, shut up and sit down in general uh gave star wars rebellion a far worse reception than like the rest of the internet uh star wars rebellion is rated as like it's in the top 10 games ever made according to the rankings on board game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of people love it. That's people fine. love it. So do take a look at Star Wars Rebellion. But here and now, I think Matt and I will say officially, you know, you don't need to wait for the War of the Ring review. We'll just say we prefer it to Rebellion. Yeah, I do. I'd love a newer version though because it's, it's very much like so many things in it are just like, oh! Well, hey, we got a second edition that made everything new in 2012. Maybe in a few years they'll do a third edition. That'd be nice. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, hey, should we briefly talk about Rising Sun? Right, yeah. Hello, everybody. It's me, Quinn's from the future again. Uh, and I'm not here to repair a tear in the space-time continuum and save us all. I'm just here because Matt and I completely forgot to explain what Rising Sun actually is. So, here I go. So, if you remember the game Blood Rage from a few years ago, um, in the words of publisher Simon, Rising Sun is the spiritual successor. Same designer, same artist, same studio, and same sculptors. But where Blood Rage was a whole bunch of uh, Viking clans warring for supremacy, Rising Sun is a whole bunch of Japanese fictional clans warring across Japan. 
But war is actually a pretty small part of Rising Sun. Uh, players are trying to get points, uh, and you get points from all kinds of things, from being honourable to um, buying cards with money to, yeah, winning wars, but more importantly, winning wars all over Japan. Uh, negotiation is... Uh, supposedly a very big part of the experience um, with uh, Eric Lang wanting players to talk to avoid fights or talk to create alliances uh, and in doing so save themselves resources that can be better spent getting the things that they want. But the setting is probably the really standout thing about it. Um, it's a really odd mishmash of Japanese myth and legend but also history uh, featuring stuff like dragons fighting alongside armies and fortresses on the back of turtles and some stunning misinterpretations of the traditional religion of Shintoism or how Japanese ritual suicide works. Uh, basically, if Rising Sun was any less ridiculous, it would probably be offensive, but mostly the setting kind of works. Uh, it's beautifully illustrated and pretty inventive and awesome. Uh, although, of course, if you are Japanese and we are wrong and some stuff in Rising Sun is actually uh, offensive, do get in touch. On with the game. Uh, we've played the game. Uh, Matt's, I think, going to have a written review coming up on the site in a few weeks. Yep. Um, so we've only played it once, so yep. this is just first impressions. Yeah, I need to dive back in then uh, with a with a bunch of other people. Um, I didn't really enjoy it that much, to be honest. Um, and yeah. you know what's funny? Like I went back this morning and listened to um, one of the earlier podcasts. I wouldn't recommend people do because it was one we did at the UK Games Expo where we recorded it on the pinhole microphone <laughs> on my laptop by accident. One of our finest moments. Because I found myself feeling like, yeah, like I didn't play Blood Rage because I had enough people who I have similar tastes to say that I thought I'm not not really interested and reading reviews about it you know I was like I'm not this doesn't sound like it's for me however like we also played um Godfather uh Eric Lang's the Godfather official the Godfather board game yeah we played that and I found myself going back and listening to what I thought about that because to be honest I didn't enjoy that when we played it and I just pretty much my brain had put it into like a space of being like I don't really need to think about that anymore <laughs> right but it was interesting because even though it's mechanically very different um, I think a lot of my frustrations were born from similar places and I'm increasingly just wondering if it's just like the more I think about Rising Sun I feel it like for me it's like it's a gamer's game but in what is for me the worst possible reading of that sentence okay in the fact that so much of the game it ostensibly looks like a game about war and negotiation and it has some lovely systems. It has honor as being a system for breaking any tie. Who's yes. more honorable than you win? That's really lovely. I like that a lot. It has a lot of wonderful, colorful stuff. It has, you know, different um, factions that have different abilities. And when we read the, when I read the manual and explained the game, I was excited to play it. I, I was thought, as well. This sounds awesome. It has a nice mechanic whereby uh, two players can choose to ally at the start of any round mm -hmm. and then they both get benefits. Mm -hmm. um, the alliance is broken if one of you does the powerful betrayal ability, which also lowers your honor. Um, but there is a lot to be said for being either at the top or the bottom of the honor track. Mm -hmm. So there's a fun decision that players are constantly making of... Uh, Ooh, I, mm, it would be good to be dishonorable now, but I'm at the top and I don't really... Or you just go all in. Yeah. And go, I'm going to be the seediest bastard in Japan. And then you have this uh, element of being like, well, having to build up a bit of money and get access to Ronin, who are your kind of like mercenaries that you hire and bring in, and then having a war round effectively at the end of each kind of round. So you only actually really have three battles in the game or three sequences of battles where things all over the world pop up and yeah. some areas will be involved and some areas won't and that's out of your control. Um, 
And there's a bidding system for different elements. And this is where the seppuku comes in, where one of the things you can bid for is if you win the, the bid for that, all of your troops just kill themselves immediately and you get victory points for each person. And honor. And honor. Because what could be more honorable than your entire army killing themselves? Yeah. So, and then, but then you have like a bunch of different things you can bid on for the fights and then you do it behind a screen, you lift up. That's a cool idea. You build up resources between rounds and then at the end of the round, you, you're trying to work out what the other player is going to be bidding for. And you're trying to outbid them on certain things or outwit them. However, oh, I, can, before we move on to dodgy sure. stuff, can I say one more thing I really like? Yeah, yeah. I you say that you only have three sequences of fights in the whole game. Often with dudes on a mappy war games, um, combat will really slow the game down. So it's mm-hmm. like everyone's making choices, and then oh, these two people are having a fight, so I'll go make a tea now or whatever. I I really liked that Rising Sun compressed all the combat into like one 20 minute window. So you did all your scheming for 40 minutes, then it goes, okay, you're all going to be fighting now. And you can sort of switch your brain off a bit. You can relax. You kind of, you're in the fighting state of mind. You enjoy all that. And then you go back to strategizing. Yeah. Which is, which is, I felt really wonderful. The other way to get around it, of course, is what Inish does and just make fights really short. Yeah. And I love the flow of the overall game of having like this stack of 10 little cardboard or plastic, if you've got the super luxury Kickstarter version, you 10 actions. And then you know that they're basically each round, they're going to be passed around and you're going to use seven of them. But each time you draw four from the top, look at them, choose one, and then put the remaining three back on the top, which is really interesting because for a game in negotiation, it means then the next player, you know, three out of four of the options they have in terms of what they can do on this turn, which means you can then be like, look, don't do this, do that. Um, One of the things we had with this where I think it didn't really pop for us was we played it with three, which in a game with negotiation and allies, we knew going into it, it wasn't really going to pop. You know, we were just like, let's have a little play around. We were just trying it. And instantly before the comments all show up, before we give any kind of exclusive verdict, we're absolutely going to play. Oh yeah, absolutely. We kind of, and this is, that's a caveat I'm mentioning because it's like, from first impressions, it's like, you know, this is not the optimal way to play this and I'm going to get back in again and not tell the people I play it with what I think about it at all, (laughs) which is crucial. I'll just sit there and go, yeah, it's kind of good. And then uh, see see how it goes. It's a vital element of playtesting. Yeah, it is, right? It is. Come to my house, play a game that I'm not sure I like. <laughs> it's not exactly the best way to get people to your house on a weekend. Um, but yeah, I think what I started to realize towards the end was, A, a lot of it was so abstract. You weren't really playing a war game. You were kind of negotiating here and there. But really, a lot of it came down to making decisions which were based on being, I'm going to do this to get me points now. And points are a thing. It's not like you're amassing another abstract set of things which become points at the end of the game. You're literally getting victory points. Yeah. So you go to the shop and there's these cool things. And how, like with Blood Rage, it has these really amazing giant miniatures that are awesome. And it's like, what do you want to buy from the shop? You could buy this gigantic, cool Japanese dragon, or you could buy a card that gets you nine victory points. And nine times out of ten, the best choice is... Just buy the card that gets you nine victory points yeah. if you want to win. So there's a weird like disconnect between like playing the game for fun and playing the game to win. And I found that I, I played incredibly badly and I was really bad at it, but I knew why. And it was more that I didn't want to change my behavior to be doing better because I was doing stuff that felt fun. So it has this really unusual thing whereby um, the miniatures and the map take up like 80% of the real estate on the table. Like yeah. it is absolutely a dudes on a map game. And yet it, it's not because None. so much of the game is in cards and sideways rules and clever things you can do. Um, whereby it reminded me of games I had of Blood Rage, whereby a player would sort of be digging for an exploit. 
So the last game I played of Blood Rage was uh, my friend who picked up all the cards which gain you victory points when your soldiers die. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would just get into fights, lose them, and then explode up the victory point that track. And in this, it didn't matter that I only had a few cool plastic samurai ladies on the You had the so much money. Because I had so much money and I was playing the clan that let me turn money into Ronin. And it w- there was no way anyone could win a fight against me at all. And I just ex- blasted up the victory point track again. I want to say that if you don't play that many games, the idea of finding an exploit feels great. You're like, oh my God, wait, if I have if I have all my money and I hire all these, I can, no one can beat me in a fight. And that's a cool moment for you. For me, if I break a game in that way, that's not entertaining for me because that's what I want games to not offer me. I want a game to be robust and not let me kind of pick my way through until I, and until I work out a multiplier that mm. just means that people can't beat me. I think that's why I, in the first game, didn't get on too well with it, was the fact that I was playing as the clan which could buy cards very cheaply. So I kind of realized that for me, my strategy had to just be every, just as often as I could, buy cards from the shop that got me victory points. And it's like, you know, when you've got this amazing table full of cool things to play with, giant wicked miniatures, armies, to have your game plan being, well, I'm just going to buy victory points from the shop. It's like, I don't want to play that game. That's the thing. And I think that's what's interesting about it is I also realized that in the context of how the battles worked. In the end of our game, I was in a fight against uh, Clark, who we're playing with, and he had amassed all of his armies into one area um, because he'd worked out that basically if he put everyone in one area, had a fight, and then purposefully got them all to commit seppuku, yeah. and then also bid on the one which gets you points for everyone who dies. Yes. He would get a huge amount of points yeah, the, for just murdering his entire army. And it, but see, and this is kind of what I'm talking about, because on that mechanic in and of itself is quite cool, like because the, the getting points for everyone who dies, because what you're doing there is you're, you're spending the most money on war poets, who will write these beautiful stories of everyone who died in that battle. There's also this mechanic whereby you can just have everyone kill themselves instantly and become honorable, which is, I think, to some people, really cool. And that, But then Rising Sun, the game, is in being that player who goes, oh, if I combine these two things, then I can get like 23 victory points, yeah. which is an insane amount of victory points. Yeah. And clearly, like, you know, Eric Lang is a really smart guy. We've met him. We get along incredibly well with him. He'll, he'll that hasn't escaped his notice that that combo exists. Yeah, which no, means, that's what the game's about. Which means the game is in finding these combos. And it's like... But hang on, then I don't know. I think, what's up with the miniatures? And I think that's the thing is there's a weird there's a weird mismatch in like in terms of uh, when I'm playing a game that looks like this. I think it, a lot of it comes down to actually perceptions. Um, and I found the same thing with The Godfather of being like what what I thought the game looked like and what how it actually played. I actually ended up being very different. And this looks like you're playing a big big map war game, and it's not really. It's it's kind of bizarre because for the final in the final move in the final battle to abandon all everywhere in the world all go to one place and have your entire army kill themselves just because it gets you the most points is the sort of wacky idea that you might see in like cosmic encounter if you're playing some sort of crazy race that just wants to eradicate themselves or something which in that context I'm like okay but in this it's like that's a rubbish story <laughs> like you you know you it's rubbish. It's and like, I think that's the problem is I, I like to play games because I like to have stories. When we play, when we played um, The Godfather, the story was everyone just tried to do something and then everyone got car bombed constantly. And it was just <laughs> kind of frustrating because everyone's like, oh, everyone's dead again. Okay, fine. Like, what I was going to do this turn didn't happen. Yeah, it was, it's a weird point salad where I think then what you've got in the fights effectively is I'd now know, ah, someone's moving their entire army into one space. Obviously, they're going to try and have them all kill themselves. And it's like, I don't know. I just sort of feel like at that point, when you're trying to outbid people on these tracks by trying to suss out what they're going to invest in on these tracks and outbidding them with coins, 
it really is just about looking at and trying to work out what is going to get this person the most points immediately, right? Yes. And, and that to me is just a bit boring. But I mean, I'm going to see how I get on with it because I think the buying cards from the shop thing was especially uninteresting. So I'm going to try how I get on with different... Right, it um, does run somewhat contrary to how the game is played because if you want to play Rising Sun well, like let's say you're in second place and you want to deny victory points to the person in first place, the way the game looks, you would think you look at the map of Japan, you look at the five-inch tall plastic monsters on the board, you look mm. at that. But no, actually, to try and play well, you're looking at the very small cards with the very small text that are in front of them. And so it's it's a world apart from the physical pleasure you would get of pushing beautiful soldiers around this beautiful map. Actually, I'm looking at the very small cards in front of you. And honestly, that was very similar to the complaint I had about Blood Rage, that the game existed in tiny cards. It feels like there's something as well very transient about it so far of being like, you know, yeah, you can... You know, it doesn't really matter. You can lose all your people. You can lose this war. You're not really holding on to anything. You're moving around. Like, uh, a good objective is to win a fight in every location in the world, which is just like as if it's Mario Kart or something. It's just too many visible numbers for me. I'm really interested to see if, like, actually next time I'm going to dive in and I'm going to just try and play with it and try and play with the systems and see if I can get some joy out of that. But I think I really like things to be just thematic and, and, and getting into it. And I find that... Every time I, I play a game designed by Eric Lang, I, I find myself realizing that I'm playing badly and I'm going to lose really badly. But I know why, and I just don't want to rectify that because it means making decisions that to me are not interesting. But yeah, I think there's just a, there's a lot of really cool theming stuff going on. It just feels like maybe there's um, not much for connect between that and the numbers of it. I mean, there was a, a point where like I, I lost a battle because... I kind of hadn't really assumed that you could kidnap my gigantic demon that was about 60 foot tall. We're using the kidnap a soldier ability. And yes. then they're like, oh yeah, there's nothing here that says you can't do that. So yeah, I guess you've kidnapped. I guess which... your, your tiny inch tall soldier has kidnapped the five inch tall ogre. Yeah, okay. which is like, honestly, it's a weird thing of being like, and this for me is where you actually have uh, it, be, it being more than just a value proposition of being like, you know, is it worth spending the money on all of these gigantic miniatures? But more of an actual like design, game design thing of being like, you know what, like if this soldier who is two and a half centimeters tall or three centimeters tall uh is supposed to be capturing something that's six centimeters tall then you have I'll to go, you okay have, you have to shrink the i can imagine it i know I, I can imagine that like if it's just like if it's maybe twice as big oh, I can, right. like in my head i can envision being like no all right yeah that guy he did die in the fight oh he did get captured or he wasn't that useful but you know fair enough it's like but when it's this big when it's like a the size of your fist and you're putting this thing on the table to go boom i got this now and it's just not it's no better than a card that you could have bought mm. that to me is a design problem everyone wants big minis but the game design just kind of doesn't hold them up blood rage had a similar thing that you get the enormous sea monster and it's worth like two dudes you know yeah. it's 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 it, it it's a disconnect between how cool the minis look and their actual role in the game yeah we're, i'm not going to be playing it anymore with matt because uh i wasn't even supposed to be playing it on saturday um because my review of blood rage was such an aberration with like sort of the popular taste and the yeah. love of that game that we're giving rising sun to a different person different pair of eyes and it's worth saying actually that like throughout the entire game quinn's did not let on at all what he was thinking about at all and it wasn't until afterwards that i basically started saying to him what i thought of it that he kind of even began to say, yeah. <laughs> Which is admirable, because it's that thing, if the whole point was he didn't really want, he was like, no, I didn't get on with that. Lots of people loved it. Let's just give it some fresh eyes, and I will not taint it. And you you didn't. You did that very well, very well. Uh, the internet will ignore, ignore all of that, of course. And hey, you know what? Hey, I'll say now, I'd play it again. 
I, yeah. I, I'm not because you know I would I I, I wouldn't I enjoyed it that much, but because I'm curious about it. You know, it yeah, was, it was not it was not a disaster. You know, no, no, but I am far more excited to play War of the Ring. Yeah, it was just again. I think that's the key thing. It was like every time it was the same with Godfather. It was the same with this. It's just disappointing. I read the rules. I think this is going to be great, and it's kind of fun for the first third, first half, but the second half of the game, I just get the sense that. This isn't really feeling like I wanted it to. And then when it ends, it doesn't really matter if I've won or lost. I just don't really feel like it, I care. Which is unfortunate um, for is. Eric Lang because humans only remember the beginning and end of things, right? So it's Eric true. Lang's made games where the beginning and middle are good, but you need that end to be good. But tons of people love them. So what do we know? We should throw our jobs in the bin. We're two chumps in a room with some mics. That's the only difference between us and you, the mics and the chump. Yeah, you're not a chump. We love you. Put your hand in my mailbag for me a letter. Oof, we've got a heavier mailbag than usual this week because it's a mailbag on Twitter because we needed some fast little questions quickly. So we've said, hey, everybody, what's going on? Our mailbag is uh, distressingly empty uh, mm. most days this week. Uh, won't somebody feed our poor hungry mailbag? And you can do that by writing an interesting question mm-hmm. to contact at shutupandsitdown.com. Yeah. It can be long. It's fine. It yeah. can be a, a sort of agony aunt thing. It's um, an email. And in doing that, you will have provided valuable calories to our hungry, bag, sloppy, bag. wet, bag. Ga- gasping bag. 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 Um, but we did get some great questions today. We've got a lot of really, really good questions, um, many of which we're not going to cover because some of them are actually like really chewy ones. And frankly, I'm very tired and this podcast is overrun. But thank you so much. Yeah, for- Matt is exhausted. So we're just going to pick a couple that uh, that we want to answer. Uh, starting with... Jordan Nelson. Who asks... He asks, what are the essential elements of a good game night? I've been thinking about this, Matthew. And it depends on the person, right? This question may sound like super generic, but yeah, I've... For a person like me, what are mm-hmm. the elements of a good game night? Because I'm often hosting, right? Main thing for me, relax. Yeah. Just relax, yeah. man. Uh, the thing that I've noticed about game nights is like, I've I'm looking for those moments where everything's just perfect. When everyone's laughing and you can sort of sit back and you can be like, my work here is done, you know? And <sighs> what's funny is that is if you watch for it, how often those moments are like between games. Mm. for me like if, if everyone's just relaxed they finished a the game they're enjoying it they're talking about it or they're talking about what they want to play next or you're setting up a game like those moments where everyone's just loving everyone's company i feel like can only come about if the host has allowed it to yeah now you're right i think for me like there are some really simple components which are just really important um especially like if you're in a city like and you're not that close to things uh or, you know, you have a situation whereby, A, you've got people around your house for a set amount of time. Uh, people can't just leave whenever they want because <laughs> it's not like normal where it'd be like, I'm going to go now. You know, if someone leaves halfway through a game, you'd be like, what? So you don't exactly know how long it's going to be going on for. It means that basically you've got to make sure simple things like if at any point someone is thirsty or hungry, like have you got food for them? Have you got snacks? Have you got something more substantial if people need dinner? I mean, this is like 101 stuff. So you th- you might think that it's like, oh, why are Matt and Quinn's even saying, you know, make sure there's food for your guests. But I'm an adult. I have friends who are adults and you know what always happens to me matt what i bring two beers to someone's house for a game night yep. and then i've drunk them and the game night's really good and it's going on and you i'm like another beer i wish i had another beer exactly and it's like right? and that still happens to me it still happens so it's like it's yeah, so sad <laughs> i won't someone give quinn's another beer <laughs> but yeah it's it's simple stuff like that which is super important but to tie into that it's getting it ready early like because that's the thing it's the the problem is it's all very well to like have you know 
uh, have some food and some drinks. Maybe you've cooked some food, maybe you've prepared some stuff. But I find I'm often like running back from the shops with a bag full of pizzas and beers when people are supposed to be arriving in like two minutes. And it's yeah, just like, I'm really bad ideal. for that. Just get the stuff in early, have stuff, have options, have non-alcoholic drinks. Don't give people a beer until at least after you've explained the game. <laughs> But arguably not until the end of the first round. I often like, give people, depending on your friends or like, because my friends are really good at learning games, so they're allowed beers, but I don't give myself a beer until after I've taught the complicated sure, game. that makes sense. But as far as relaxing goes, like I know how important it is for me to relax because then your guests can relax, then everyone can enjoy themselves. Um, but I know that I can't relax if I'm teaching a complicated game and I, I'm not really sure about the manual. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm like, oh, I'm really excited to play this, so we're going to play it, but I'm not that sure on the rules. It's like, I think that's what I want. Yeah. But actually that means I'm going to be tense. I'm going to be nervous. That's going to change the atmosphere of the room. Yeah. It's probably better to take that game. You really want to play and say, no, we're going to play this when I know the rules yeah, back to front. Right. Instead, we're going to play the game that I can teach every time. That's why often it will just be like, what are we going to play? Well, I really want to check this out again. No, 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 we're just going to play something simple and easy that these guys kind of half know done also i think a simple thing which is controversial in the realm of board games is just make some nice food but make it kind of picking food don't try and choose a meal time just be like have some food on the side especially for an afternoon thing oh and let people just it's food here help yourself have food when you want and this is the crucial point just let people sit down with a plate while they're playing the game and eat food give some kitchen roll try to avoid greasy food but just try not to freak out you know what's people m- getting crisps on your game. What's more important, <laughs> a relaxed atmosphere yeah. that it allows you to enjoy the game or a pristine game. Because it's difficult. You you have you've got this opportunity to be overbearing as a host being like because it's one very well to have people being like you don't want people being hungry, but you'd also don't want to be the host being like can I introduce you in some more lasagna? <laughs> Once every five minutes. We did get an email about this and I, it's heartbreaking. I don't know um the person's name, uh but they were saying that they come up with the best food for board gaming, which is a plate of individual pies. <laughs> like, because <laughs> yeah, there's like right? short crust, so there's no grease. And then yeah. um, you can make it beforehand. It can come out of the fridge. It's cold. You can warm it up, whatever. They can be small enough that they can people can eat them at the table without a plate. Yep. And if the, you make the consistency right, they're not going to drip anywhere. Mm-hmm. And yet, also, very substantial. Yeah. Very tasty. Now, that is a pretty good shout. I think it's just a case of having stuff there letting people take it when they want because you are the host but also you're the kind of game master you're the person who has all the rules and, and that, that's actually quite diff- difficult to yeah. do both of those and things and it's, it's A difficult and stressful and B it can cause a dynamic where people have come around to your house and suddenly it's like it's your house it's your game you know the rules you're in charge of when people eat and feed it can actually if you're not careful create a weird dynamic where it's not terrible but you're just not you're not having as much fun as you could be yeah I mean I've I've had all kinds of game nights where I don't enjoy myself. My guests do, I think, but I don't. And that's probably better than them not and me enjoying myself. But it's it's tricky. Sugar's good as well. As the night goes on, bit of chocolate or something. But again, not like booze. Don't go too hard too early. Sometimes people crack open a bag of Haribo, like when you're learning the game, people get way too overexcited. And then as soon as you get into the analysis paralysis of the second or third chunk of the game, everyone's like asleep because they've crashed out. So just do those 900 things. And, and it's easy. And it's easy. <laughs> it's yeah, easy. Uh, and finally, we're going to answer Grant Rodiak's question because I've got thoughts on this. Uh, Grant Rodiak writes in. Uh, Grant Rodiak, of course, designer uh, of board games such as Cry Havoc uh, and Hocus and uh, some other stuff. He's coming to Shucks this year. It's very exciting. Um, but he writes, Steampunk is pretty terrible. Yeah. 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 Well, so here's my thing. Steampunk does not have to be terrible, right? Steampunk as a genre doesn't, it it often is. But for examples of really good steampunk, you want stuff that gets what's sort of exciting about that era. Like 
Uh, if you've played the video game 80 Days or a book that I'll recommend here and now is called Aurora Rama, which is by a... It's uh, about all the best auroras. <laughs> it's about a city that Europe comes together to build in the Arctic that has a big wall that keeps it warm. and But it, ultimately, it's like freezing cold and dark all the time. And it's about what people have to do to try and stay sane in that city. Um, but it's great because Victorian times, which Steampunk has said in, is actually pretty interesting, right? The yeah. Victorians were living in a wonderful intersection of like, if you, <laughs> we assume that like uh, the rational stoic Victorians are like, well, technology, of course, and we'll turn our backs on religion. No, the Victorians were all about like technology and ghosts and yeah. like spooky stuff and, and stuff that couldn't be explained in the paranormal. Rationality in a, as a sort of popular nerdy concept came a lot later. Yeah. So yeah. Victorian times, there's no limit to how interesting they can be. Um, and to reduce it to monocles cogs. and top hats and cogs, that is what sucks. Like, truly great steampunk is just awesome. Another piece of good steampunk would be The Goblin Emperor, which I recommended in the show. Yeah, we had, a, a I think, an uh, email from someone recently on loving that recommendation. Yeah, yeah. I need to dive in and check Goblin that out. Goblin Emperor is a nice book. I mean, it's it's really, it's not even that steampunk, but it kind of is like, because it knows that what's interesting is not cogs and monocles and top hats. It's just kind of a... There's stuff beyond the fashion of it, isn't there? That's the thing. Yes. It's like it becomes a, a an aesthetic where actually like there's more and, interesting things. And if the there. most interesting about, thing about your world is an aesthetic, then it's always going to be shallow. I got feelings on steampunk, Matthew. Yeah, I got, I got feelings. Well, it's I think it's the same vein of, of feelings to like um, Lovecraft, really, of being like, why does it just have to be shotguns and tentacles? It yeah. can be, and I think steampunk is yeah, like there's there's interesting stuff that can be done in that kind of Victorian mechanical era and. And I think, you know, we liked the Arkham Horror card game so much for uh, a lot of Fantasy Flight's previous Lovecraft games were, you know, had insanity as a mechanic whereby you just got madness tokens and if you get enough, you go crazy, which is very flat. But when you have a deck, as the Arkham card game does, that's your character, it's very easy to have insanity be just a card that goes in your deck. Like, yeah. oh, you saw this, add this card to your deck and you go, oh no. And occasionally you'll just remember it as that card. And actually, that's, I mean, that game is the best of both worlds because, hey, if you want it to be tentacles and shotguns, you can have tentacles and shotguns. You can like, play the character that literally has a shotgun. Just, you can have just, just shotguns and dynamite, fine. But you can just play someone who just walks around with a tremendous amount of books. like, And that's fine. It never occurred to me, yeah. You, if you play it two-player, which is, we think, what it's best at, yeah. two-player, um, then, yeah, you could have, like, the book character and, you know, the weird spellcaster character. Just and... be very good at avoiding trouble, yeah. maybe, and yeah. doing weird stuff. I'm you can pretty sure it, you could do that. Have it, yeah, you can. You could be the rogue and the, uh, and you know, have disengaged from enemies. Yeah, I was, a rogue. I was very good at running away. Yeah, it's Much like in real life. And uh, we had a bunch of other questions. Somebody asked me what was uh, the relationship status between me and my beard. I had to cut a shave off my beard um, to, to do a bit of filming for a secret thing which is coming soon which is the second episode of Cool Ghosts it's just something that me and Quinn's work on which is about video games I had to shave my face for that but then I shaved my face again by accident um, I didn't mean to I had this set too low and I realised I'd shaved it all off yeah. oh no I love my beard I just keep hurting it we had a couple of tweets asking just how we're doing are we okay and the answer is yeah I think the team's pretty good yeah if you want to send some support to Paul right now who's travelling around America as he waits for the status on his Canadian visa which is no fun I think mm -hmm. it, he, he was he had a really brave face and was enjoying it for a while but yeah. like he's not on this podcast because he's just sort of between homes and so yeah it doesn't have access to microphones and space and stuff we would have loved to have him on here tonight but yeah he couldn't make it today but 
yeah, send him some love. Yeah, Matt and I are doing uh, doing pretty good though. Uh, we've got GDC coming up, and I am moving from London to Brighton, Britain, at the end of this month. If you're outside the UK, that will mean nothing to you. But if you're inside the UK and you're in Brighton, hey, I'm coming to your city. Matt and I will, of course, continue to work together. Mm-hmm. London's just a train ride away. It's from just Brighton. a train. We and can deal with it. We'll will it'll involve us sleeping over at each other's houses. It will. It's going to be. What's going to happen on those nights? Probably pillow fights. I was going to say nothing. Why do you think there'll be pillow fights? I'm going to attack you with a pillow. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, well, you can look forward to that. It's everybody. either going to be a pillow fight or a pillow assault. That's up to you. Um, I don't know how to react to this. Let's end the podcast. Okay, that is a good reaction. Uh, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please do uh, give us a lovely little review. Um, because, of course, we had some difficulty recently having to swap over from our old podcast feed to this one which means reviews are very welcome. Yeah, we've started again afresh, a new world underground. I'm just trying to get our listener numbers back up. It's like climbing a, a sort of uh, statistical mountain. Made of ice. Uh, made of numbers and ice. Okay. Uh, but we're getting there with your help. So if you want to help today, please give us a review. And to everyone who has, thank you so much. You're great, you are. And just thanks for listening to the podcast. We yeah. like talking about stuff, and sometimes people listen to it, and that's fun. We were pretty opinionated about two very well-received games this yeah. episode, but you know what? Uh, that's not what we like to do. No, we so. like to enjoy stuff. But do remember that opinions are just opinions, and if you like something that we don't like... That's awesome. You are no more wrong or right than us. Opinions, they're like air, they're everywhere. That's exactly. That, that's that quote, right? Exactly. Uh, good stuff. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>